Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, everyone. It's Sophia. Welcome to Work in Progress. Hello, friends. This week, we are joined by a guest who I am such an unabashed fan of. I'm so excited that he's here. We have friends in common who've told me I'd love him for so long that I knew today was going to be fun and it was still better than I could have imagined. You might know him from his hit show, Somebody Feed Phil. You might know him as the creator and writer and visionary behind Everybody Loves Raymond. You might know him as the author of You're Lucky You're Funny, How Life Becomes a Sitcom. And you might know him as Murray the Dog's dad on Instagram. However you know him, you know Phil Rosenthal is hilarious, has great taste in food, and perhaps even better taste in friends. Today, he's here to talk about how he managed to turn his love of meeting people and breaking bread into a hit series on Netflix where he gets to travel the world and do just that, city to city, country to country. And we're also going to talk about something he's doing that really has captured my excitement. He's written a book with his daughter, Lily, called Just Try It, about a food-loving dad encouraging his picky eater daughter to just try something new. And as I'm sure you would have guessed by now, knowing that he bases just about everything on his life and manages to turn his very specific into our very universal, even this book that Phil and Lily wrote together is based on their experiences as a dad and daughter. Let's get to it. 
people know you from Somebody Feed Phil. People know you from creating one of their favorite TV shows ever, Everybody Loves Raymond. People people know you from Instagram because they love to follow the adventures of Murray the dog. Mm. But I want to know who you were before you became the Phil Rosenthal we all know today. Were you, like if we rewound into yes. your early childhood and you were yes. like you would not six have years old or eight years old. Oh, come on. Yes, I would have. We would have been like, we would have been out snacking. Would you have been in the, in like the after school plays and things like that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cause that's yeah. what I, I just wanted to be funny. I just, wanted, my, my dad was funny. In fact, my, my mom first saw him. He was doing amateur night jokes in a club in New Jersey. She was no. on another date. Wait, where in New Jersey? I don't remember the exact okay. spot. My family comes from Teaneck, which is why I'm asking. Ah, ah. it might have been around there. <laughs> okay. So she, wait, she was on a date with some other guy? If you see that episode that was a tribute to my parents the, the, from season six, Okay. We did because they both passed now. But we so my brother and I put together a tribute to them of all their greatest hits from the show and a little bit of their history and their story. And they got together with oh. their surviving friends who were of in their nineties. And yes. they told me the story for the first time. I didn't know this is how they met. She no. was on, they go to some club in New Jersey on a date, and there's it's amateur night, and people are getting up and either playing the trumpet or do it. And my dad got up and told some jokes. He was a tailor. Okay, in the garment district, but unbelievable. He wanted to tell jokes, so he did. And I always said, if he's not funny on that night, I'm not here. So funny is literally in your DNA. Okay, so you come from this great meet cute. Yeah. Who who are you as a kid? Where do you grow up? I'm are you are, were, were you into food? And were you funny then? Were you how, how, tell me who you were when you were like. Nine years old. I was a skinny little nothing. You know what nebbish <laughs> means? Uh-huh. <laughs> so that was me. Really small, really skinny, uh, jealous of my very cute younger brother <laughs> who got all the attention and still does. And I, uh, you know, I was picked on. It's such a cliche. Oh. Like I used funny as a defense as and also... Uh, the only way I was going to get make friends or get a girl to talk to me was to try to be funny. That's all mm -hmm. I could offer. Right. And mm -hmm. because my dad was funny, my mom was actually very funny too, in a different way. Uh, and, and everyone I saw on TV, uh, everyone I saw on Johnny Carson, you know, Don yeah. Rickles, all those famous old Borscht Belt comedians. And I listened to Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner records, you know, the 2000 yeah. year old man. Do you know that? I do. So yeah. good. And I just, if someone was funny, they, they had my heart. That was it. Mm -hmm. And that's all I wanted to be. And so the school plays were the only outlet for that. And I started as early as junior high, wanting to be in the school plays, not to, because I thought of myself as a great actor, but uh, this was the only outlet to be funny. And because I could do voices and I could do characters. So I wasn't a stand-up comedian. I tried right. that once, didn't like it. Too stressful. It, if you if you've ever been in a school play, the audience comes, they sit there and they watch. Yeah. If you try stand up, you're in a bar or a club, and the bar is taught they're not going to shut up for you, especially yeah. if you're there for the first time. <laughs> so I liked it better when I was in the show. Yeah. So I I was very encouraged in high school to pursue this, 
I was a big star in high school. And then I went to Hofstra University. I was a big star at Hofstra. And then I moved into New York City. And nobody called New York City to tell them what a big star I was in <laughs> high school and college. <laughs> so I turned to writing. And that way I could eat what I wanted. And I loved, uh, to answer your question, I loved food. I just, in my parents' house, I wasn't in an environment where that love could uh, flourish. Mm. <laughs> they, they weren't cooks. They, they worked. They both worked and, and, you know, the cuisine in the house was cheap. Yeah. Whatever we could afford. I used to say in our house, meat was a punishment. <sighs> it was dry and tough. I didn't have steak mm. until I was like 23 in New York. Somebody said, we're going to a steakhouse tonight. You want to come in? Who would want to go to a steakhouse? That sounds terrible. Because <gasps> I had terrible meat in yeah. my house. And then I go, so I went and out comes this gorgeous thing. That steak? Change your whole life. And then I ate it. I'm like, that steak? I went oh. home and yelled at my mom. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think I got lucky because, okay, so not dissimilarly to your parents. My parents have a meat cute. Yes. They lived in the same apartment building. My mom grew up. My, my mom's family came to the East Coast through Ellis Island from Italy yes. on a boat. Yes. My mom grew up in the Bronx. And then eventually her her dad had saved up enough money to move them into a little suburb in New Jersey. And it, my mom's mother, you know, my, my grandmother's mother, my great grandmother was oh. the one who came, you know, with her children. And so if you fast forward to my mom being a little kid, you have this woman who's transplanted from Italy, but who's yeah. still hand making pasta and, you know, her own sausage and everything in this apartment building in the Bronx. And my mom grew up watching her cook. And it was in that era where everybody was trying to assimilate so hard that my grandparents said, you will not speak Italian to the grandkids. So in one generation, they lost the Whoa. language. But my mom remembers a lot of the food. And so there are things like I grew up with my grandma's meatballs in my house. Whoa. And... um fast forward to you know adulthood for my mom she's like tending bar in new york and it's wild here and she gets to a point where she's like i gotta get out of new york city and decides she wants to move to la and she moves into this apartment building in mid wilshire and her dog is like growling at this guy in the elevator and she's like i'm so sorry he's never he's never so much as sniffed a person he's so well behaved i don't know why he has a problem with you you know, my dad's like, I was shaking in my boots trying not to get eaten by a Doberman, but I knew why the dog didn't like me. I had a crush on this woman in my building and I didn't know how to ask her out. And, you know, my mom grew up around like East Coast tough guys. And she was like, I didn't think he was trying to ask me out. He was like this soft-spoken artist guy. I thought he was gay. <laughs> so it took my parents right. a minute to figure it out. That's and great. and that's that's where I come from. It's a love story thanks to a dog. Your grandmother was a great cook mm -hmm. and your mom watched her. And then mm -hmm. brought in some of that. Okay, so yeah. my grandmother was a good cook too, but my mother didn't watch her. Ah. She wasn't interested. She didn't have the time or the temperament for it. Yeah. You know? So I, it wasn't until I left that house that I had mm -hmm. food with what they call um, flavor. Yeah. That's <laughs> wild, isn't it? Yes. And it's it's funny too, because, you know, we, we all have these interesting markers of, you know, success and when you work in this business and you're lucky enough to write a show or be on a show for a long time, and like you said, you can go out and you can eat what you want. 
the thing that feels like the biggest luxury to me in my adulthood is yep. having time to cook. Oh, that's great. Like it is just, oh, I love it so much. That's great. I can't yeah. cook. I inherited that. <laughs> I can't cook, but uh, you'll never see a bigger fan than me yeah. of people who can. I love it. I even invest in restaurants because I'm, I'm not very bright. But I, I, I love, you know, we said my wife and I, we support the arts. Yeah. And that's one of the arts to me. Food is absolutely an art. Oh, we're going to have to talk about restaurant investing. I, I want to learn. I need a mentor, Phil. I'm signing myself up to go to Phil school. I've done pretty well, mainly because I don't care about the money. I don't mm -hmm. do it for the money. Yeah. I do it. Here's my one criteria. Here's my first piece of advice. You taste the food. Yeah. Do you love it? I mean, love it? Would you, you can't wait to have this again? That's a good sign. Yeah, that should kind of be it. That's it. I don't care about the trendiness. In fact, the less trendy, the better. Those mm -hmm. trends come and go. Great food mm -hmm. if you can maintain, maintain it. The first restaurant I was involved in was a restaurant called Jar. Do you know Jar? No. Jar is one of the great LA classics now because it's oh. been there almost like, is it 20 years? Maybe more. It's fantastic. It's on Beverly. And it's just a classic American, they call it American chop house. Right. Mm. And the chef has stayed there the whole time, which is another very good sign that yeah. the chef is dedicated and staff is, you know, pretty much intact. So that's all, all I care about. So cool. Yeah. Okay. So now you're talking about investing in restaurants because you love food so much. And you talked about landing in New York as a student and winding yes. up a writer. Yes. We're, we've, we've skipped a lot of life oh, yeah. in between here. We skipped a lot of heartache. <laughs> I bet. A lot of crying at alone in, in the apartment. Yeah. yeah, it's like everybody says it takes 10 years to become an overnight success in this town. By the way, I did that tw at least twice. Mm. Because after Raymond, okay, you would mm -hmm. think and people expected you're going to write another sitcom. I expected it of myself. No, it didn't happen. The business changed a lot in that time. And I had this yeah. dream to do what I'm doing now. And that took another 10 years. Wow. To get it. Yes. Even wow. after success. I think, I don't know if you agree with this, but, you know, Raymond, I mean, my God, the size and scope of that show, what you guys did. And to have a show that big on for that long, you know, I, I think about my first show, it is a bit like lightning in a bottle, right? Like Always. when we signed up to do One Tree Hill, we didn't know yes, it was going to be on for nine years. We didn't right. know. Right. It was going to be this cult classic. And and we were one of those shows, maybe it's because we were young and it's how they avoided ever having to give us a raise. But, you know, they yeah. would say every year, oh, you're on the bubble, you might get canceled. So we never really even knew that we were a hit. Oh, yeah. And I know that feeling. Right? And and then in hindsight, it's like, holy shit, this show is huge and it stays huge in this crazy way. I really do feel, as as we've come up on this anniversary of it. And we're like, wow, it's been 10 years since the show ended. Uh -huh. I've done a lot of shows in between and they've been great, but I really only feel now like I have fully processed that decade. And like, I'm, I'm really ready for the next decade, like the next big project, not something I want to do for a minute or a movie I want to do for a summer. Like I'm just getting my appetite back. Do you feel like that second 10 year shift between Raymond and your show, your docu-series, 
Does it feel a little bit like that to you? Like in a way you had to sort of, you had to live as long off the show as you were on the show? Yes and no. So I came to LA, I was 29. Okay. Okay. When I came to LA in 1989, then we did get work right away writing on sitcoms. Ones and this never- is you and your brother? No, my, my writing partner at the time. I met ah, a writing okay. partner because I hadn't written before, uh, a sitcom before. So, we wrote a spec script based okay. on something that happened to me in real life in an odd job in New York. I wrote a book about this called You're Lucky, You're Funny, How yes. Life Becomes a Sitcom. And it's how to take maybe the terrible things that have happened in your life and maybe use them to do something that you would never have dreamed of doing. Like yeah. maybe making a sitcom, right? <laughs> yeah. So I had my Fakakta family in the back of my head when I met Ray Romano five years after coming to LA and yeah. working on other sitcoms. He told me about his family and the physical aspects of Raymond, meaning the parents that lived close by, the mm-hmm. brother who was older and jealous, the 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 man caught between being a wife. Uh, I mean, between his wife and mother, being a brother, being a son, being mm-hmm. a father, all that. We were taking from our lives. Every single thing you saw on Raymond happened to me or to yeah. Ray or to one of yeah. the writers. If you work for me, your job was to go home, get in a fight with your spouse, come back in and tell me about it. That was, yeah. the, that was where all the material came from. And that's probably, I would say, why it was successful, because people could relate to it. Yeah. The biggest compliment we got was you were listening outside our house last night. Yes. Right? We didn't have yes. to listen to your house. We had it in our house. It really did feel that way. I don't know anybody who watched that show and didn't kind of look over their shoulder going mm-hmm. like, am I in the Truman Show? What's happening here? <laughs> but that's the thing. And this is what I didn't realize. I, re- I learned it by trial and error, working on the pilot script, right? Mm. You write a script and you want to put in something that, that you think may be a funny scene. So I put in this scene in the pilot of when I gave my parents Fruit of the Month Club. You know what that is, Fruit of the Month Club? Like a delivery of fruit? It was called Harry and David's. I don't know if that still yeah, exists. Yeah, I remember. So I sent my parents, you know, a box of pears and my mother yeah. was upset. <gasps> well, I got your present. I said, that's nice. She goes, well, but there's so many. There's pear- Did you realize it was a box of pears? I said, yeah, but there's so many of them. There's over a dozen <laughs> pears. What am I going to do with all these pears? I said, well, I think you're supposed to eat them and get myself. I said, well, share them with dad. How many pears can your father eat? Do me a favor. Please don't send us any more food again. Oops. And I said, well, uh, Ma, an- another box is coming next month. And she said, what, more pears? And I said, no, a, a different box every month. She said, every month? <laughs> what am I going to do with all this? Fruit? I said, share with your friends. Which friends? I said, I don't, Lee and Stan. Lee and Stan buy their own fruit. Why did you do this to me? This is hilarious. I'm sorry. She said, I can't talk anymore. There's too much fruit in the house. (laughs) I put that in the pilot. Thinking that uh, people will see this and think Ray's parents are crazy, right? Yeah. I didn't realize that your parents are crazy too. Mm -hmm. Maybe not that exact way, but it's relatable because Mm -hmm. they get upset over something Mm -hmm. that you think was going to be nice. (laughs) You're right. Uh Uh-huh. And so that was the lesson. You write as specifically as you can. Yes. And therein lies the universality. Yes. We get letters from Sri Lanka. That's my mother. 
I don't know your mother in Sri Lanka. I was writing my mother. And now a word from our sponsors who make this show possible. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So... You moved out to L.A., as you said, with your writing partner at 29. Yes. But when you went to New York for college, what happens What happens in that decade? Odd jobs. Ah, okay. So did you come here for school? 
No, I came to, uh, I, I, so, so right after graduating college, I move into the city with nothing. That's 1981 now. Ah, uh, I see. I don't have an agent. I don't have any prospects. I go to open calls, what they call cattle calls. Yeah. You walk into a room and there's 300 guys there for <laughs> maybe a walk-on part. Yeah. Like, a, like a, a one-liner if you're lucky. It's not what I expected. I heard it might be rough, but I didn't think it would be that rough. Yeah. And maybe you're lucky to get one of those once every couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. How are you going to do it? You're, you're, you're one of 40,000 actors in New York going for the same. Mm -hmm. So I get odd jobs. I worked as a security guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I worked the graveyard shift at, at one time. And I was fired because I fell asleep on a 300-year-old bed in an exhibit. <gasps> Oh, dear. Yes, oh, dear. And I was fine. <laughs> they, they don't like you touching the art, let alone sleeping on it. Turns out. Turns out. And so that was terrible. And then I worked as a bartender. That was terrible. I worked as a temp. I worked for a movie company. That was somewhat more interesting. But then uh -huh. that business went out after three years. And, and then some friends of mine wrote a show for ourselves to be in. Finally, after seven or eight years of knocking around, like, what are we doing? What are we doing? This is terrible. We're not acting, number one. We're not having fun, number two. I, mm. I, I actually enjoyed pursuing the happiness, like it says in the Declaration of Independence. We have yeah. the freedom to pursue happiness. Yeah. I love that, being out on my own and at least going after what I liked, right? And I thought I was a grown-up. I had an apartment. I shared with another guy. Uh, we took the A train all the way uptown. It was it was kind of fun. New York yeah. in the 80s, it was dirty and gritty. And, you know, you see it in the movies now. If you look at movies from them, you're like, oh, people live there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and everybody lived on top of everybody. It was so cool. Times Square was not the Disneyland that it is now, right? Yeah. It was well, really rough. I'm a little but I mean, listen. Uh, maybe... Maybe there's something I'm missing, but I, I kind of, I miss old New York. Because uh, I spent my whole life coming as a kid, you know, and spending time in the summer with my family. And yeah, there was something shifted, like it really became apparent to me. It, it was obviously shifting and things, certain things needed to be cleaned up. Of course, I get it. Yeah. But, and now everything kind of feels like a pottery barn. Well, and it looks, you know, Times Square could be Las Vegas. Yeah. Or, or any other major metropolitan thing. You don't want things homogenized. You yeah. Want, just like I said about writing specifically, we yes. want New York to be specific New York. Yes. We want it to exactly feel, it. go to New York. We don't want it to feel like LA or Las Vegas or Atlanta or anywhere else. We want mm -hmm. New York. Yeah. That's why we go there. But what if Paris looked like that? Yeah. You ever go, you ever go to another country and you're uh, like, I'll be in Venice and it's the most gorgeous. Oh, my mm. God. I can't believe how, how beautiful just walking around the canals and the little bridges and everything. You turn the corner, there's a Burger King. Oh, no. No, exactly. Yes. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Get out of here. You're ruining it. Get out of here. Yeah. We don't need that. I didn't come here for that. Mm. So, so what happened in, yes. in 80s New York yeah. with this show you guys wrote? It became a, a, a big hit. It became the, it? one of the most successful off-Broadway shows in history. It was called Tony and Tina's Wedding. Have you heard of that? Wow. It's Ray still being done. Wait, I, 
the alarm bells going off in my brain right now. Phil. Yes. Wow. So I wrote that with my friends from college. I was the original priest in the off-Broadway production. They put a blonde wig on me. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't end well for anybody. Sometimes things that you do with friends, they can get ugly and nasty. That's what happened. Mm. But it was a good it was a good lesson. At the same time, a friend of mine named Alan Kirschenbaum, who I knew from high school, he was already working on as a writer in, mm-hmm. in Hollywood. And he was a year behind me. But he said, I don't like this sitcom I'm working on. Let's write a screenplay. I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, yeah, but you're funny. We'll write a, a, a screenplay together. And we thought of something and we wrote it and we sold it. Wow. Like all of a sudden, all these years of trying to make it as a character actor, nothing's happening. All of a sudden, off-Broadway show, sold a screenplay. God is telling me. Be a writer. Be a writer. Yeah. Now, the, the screenplay was never made, but, you know, at that time, I had maybe $200 in the bank, and we <gasps> sold the screenplay to HBO for $70,000. I wow. was now a thousand air. A thousand air, honey. I could eat whatever I wanted. Somebody wow. saw me in the play and said, if you come to Hollywood, you will never stop working as an actor. So I packed a bag and I moved to Hollywood and I never started working as an actor. <laughs> but I did start working as a writer right away, right away. Wow. My friend and I wrote a spec script, a spec Roseanne. What should we write about? I said, what if uh, John Goodman, they need extra money so he gets a, a, a job at night working as a guard at the museum and he falls asleep on a 300-year-old bed. Incredible. And people around town read that and said, what an imagination. Just pulled from your life. Yes. Wow. And then five years after working on various different terrible sitcoms, I I met Ray Romano. And when you guys met, did you have just that instant kind of friend chemistry where you went, oh, we're going to do this? No, I liked that he was from Queens and I was from Queens. Wow. I liked how he talked. I thought he was funny. I had seen him on David Letterman. And from that one six-minute appearance on David Letterman's show, David Letterman said there should be a show for that guy. So they set about looking for writers to create the show for him. That's how it works. And so I took the meeting. I don't think I was his first choice even. I think he wanted someone from Friends. And I don't blame him because Friends was a big hit. Yeah, but you weren't trying to make New York look like Las Vegas. You were trying to make a a city all its own. Thank God you guys wound up with each other. I think. But thank God. Right? When you look back on that now, thinking about, you know, from your meeting and then beginning to create the show together, it's such a big life. Do you have favorite memories that jump out at you right away when you think about doing the show? He was uh, very uh, wary of the business, of of being on TV, of acting even. You know, mm. we now know him as a great actor. Yeah. He's in Scorsese movies. He's, uh, he made his own movie. He did, did something called Somewhere in Queens that you should see on Hulu, everybody. Which, yes, which is please. He wrote, directed, produced, and stars it. So cool. And I couldn't be proud of him. It's a fantastic uh, movie. But when he was starting, he was very wary, especially of me coming from, you know, having worked on sitcoms. Yeah. And he didn't want to do a kind of bad sitcom. Mm. I didn't blame him. I didn't trust me either. <laughs> so it was rough at the beginning. 
as we're trying to feel each other out. We don't even know. We know what the story of the show will be, but we don't know the tone exactly. Mm -hmm. And you have to find that. And the only way to find that is by doing it. Yeah. Right. You find the tone. Like I'm sure when you started your show, it wasn't bang. This is the best it's ever going to get. Hopefully it's good enough to get on. And then it grows in quality. So that's what we think happened. And we had, you know, I think we picked a great cast and we picked great mm-hmm. writers to help us. And that was that was how. The, so favorite memories are like the first time we got, maybe it was the third episode that we filmed. The audience that's coming is uh, maybe people from nursing homes and prisons because they don't know the show yet. So they're literally grabbing warm bodies off the street to come. Please watch our sitcom taping, right? And they don't wow. know the show. It hasn't been on TV yet. There's mm-hmm. something that they're watching. Mm-hmm. But we got a laugh, a very big laugh during that third taping that was so big <laughs> that went beyond. It was a character laugh. It wasn't just they said a funny word. It was they understood right. a relationship between husband and wife, mm-hmm. and they related. And I looked at the other writers <laughs> at that moment. I said, we're all going to be millionaires. <laughs> that's amazing i didn't really mean it but i just thought this is the i knew enough that that's the that is the secret sauce that's what mm-hmm. you need is that relatability yeah and now we knew what to shoot for that's so cool yeah and you just kept going yeah and then you know when you're recognized if you're up for awards or win awards those evenings are very special not mm-hmm. just because of the win, but because you're sharing the win with your mm-hmm. friends, mm-hmm. like best friends. And we're yeah. still best friends. Ray and I, we go on vacation together every year with our families that Aww. have grown up. The kids were little, and now they're getting married. Yeah. It's very That's special. so special. Yeah. Is it, is it true that he helped inspire somebody feed Phil? Absolutely. In between season one and two. I asked him where he was going to go on his hiatus. And he said, I go to the Jersey Shore. And I said, that's nice. Have you ever been to Europe? He said, nah. Now, I'd been to Europe since I was, you know, been going since I was 23. I got a free flight to Europe when I was 23, a courier flight. Oh. Yeah. A DHL used to, before they were DHL, they would send their cargo as your excess baggage. So you would be a kid, and all you had to do was bring the luggage tags, and there'd be a guy at the other end, let's say in Zurich, with a sign saying DHL. You give him the luggage tags, you're free to go. They don't pay you, but you get a coach seat on an airline that's going overseas. And you could even have your friend get the flight the day before on that route, meet up, have two weeks, come back, do the same thing on the way back. Amazing. So that was amazing. I don't know if that exists anymore. Maybe if if you're a drug courier, maybe. I was going to say, probably not with that whole, like, did you pack these bags yourself? Yes, right, mm-hmm. right. Probably not. So that was that was the my way in. And since then, I was like, oh, I realized right away, 23 years old. First of all, oh, my God, the food. Second mm-hmm. of all, this is what your money's for. This is yeah. what your excess money is for, for travel, not to buy crap that you don't need. Yeah. For these experiences. Have you traveled a lot? I have. I've been really lucky. I Similarly to you, I got the bug early and yeah. 
because, you know, I had the sort of golden handcuff situation of being yeah. on a show from the time that I was 21 to 30. Wow. I could never really go anywhere for an extended period of time because I was yes. always working. But I started to figure out how to navigate, like, oh, if I have a Friday off, I can go to this city and visit this restaurant. Oh, if I, um, you know, a couple of seasons into our show being on, I think it was like season five, we all put our foot down and said, this Thursday, Friday off for Thanksgiving is impossible. Thanksgiving's not a holiday. It's like you jump into family. It's crazy. You're cooking. It's stressful. Yeah. You got to come back on Sunday. We said, let's just start three days earlier in July. And then we'll do the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday also off. So people get a Saturday to a, yeah. the following Sunday with their families. And right. you can actually see your family because you know, you're on set 100 hours a week. And then I was like, my family, I love you. I'm traveling. So I went to Barcelona. I went to Iceland. I would take that week and go somewhere because I'd really never been able to go anywhere before. And it, it really started to change my life. It does change your life. Yeah. That's the whole message. Yeah. You know, I tell everybody it's very good for you to go because if you're nice, we should, that's what we should be exporting is nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what you get back is invaluable. Oh. This new perspective yeah. on life that you take with you. Mm -hmm. And you realize people everywhere are mostly the same. That's right. We're mostly the same. We mostly just want to take care of our families and yes. have a good meal and have somebody make us laugh. And most and people are sweet amazing. and great and nice. Yeah. And incredibly nice. Like you yeah. can't believe how nice they are to a stranger, mm -hmm. a visitor, right? Yeah. Well, and I like that you talk about that philosophy and that experience when you talk about your show you you really uh, you know in reading interviews you speak about how the show's really about human connection oh yeah i'm just using food and my stupid sense of humor to get you in yeah so that you'll get the real message and i think for me especially you know my mom's family being italian and then yeah I, i'm this whole mixed bag of like italian catholics jews and atheists from canada wow. in my family it's like a it's a wild ride, and we have a lot of very <laughs> traditional food, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. And, and culturally, for me, the, the experiences have always been about breaking bread together. And then, you know, these, these other cultures I've been lucky enough to study in the places around the world I've been able to travel, you know, whether it's sitting down for traditional food with people in Turkey or, <clears throat> you know, breaking Ramadan with my my Muslim friends or wh whatever, whatever, wherever you come from. The gathering around a table and walking people through your food and introducing people to where your food comes from and why the dishes are traditional. It's like, it's just one of my favorite things about being a person. Me is too. Is getting that's to have that experience. Well yes, that's great. Mm. That's everything. I got to experience Ramadan this season. Cool. In Dubai, with How was it? Workers, thousands of them in the street. They laid down tarps on the street. Mm -hmm. Everybody comes and sits cross-legged on the mm -hmm. streets. The you hear the call to prayer all yeah. around you. It's magical. So beautiful. That's in Dubai. You'll see. Mm -hmm. Just gorgeous, and the people wow. are so sweet and friendly and welcoming, and it was great. Oh, I can't wait to see it on the show. <laughs> Anyway, that day when Raymond said, he goes to the Jersey Shore, he said, 
How about Europe? You ever been to Europe? He goes, nah. I said, why not? He goes, I'm not really interested in uh, different. <laughs> so they go to Jersey. I'm like, okay, we're going to do that episode. He goes, what do you mean? I go, we're going to send you over as you, and you're going to come back as me. And we did that episode. Took four what? years to get him on a plane. He didn't want to fly. But we did it. A, a two-parter called Italy, and it came out very well. But the best thing about that is I saw the change that I wrote in the character. I saw happen to the person. I saw it happen to Ray Romano. I saw, like, he comes wow. running over to me. He goes, Phil, have you had gelato? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. incredible and then that got in deep you know i'll bet you're mm -hmm. doing what you do because you like turning people on to stuff you like right yeah that's why we do things that's my favorite thing mm -hmm. taste this yeah right my favorite thing is to have an interesting conversation with someone and i figured out how to turn it into my job that's it and the thing i like about it is that i can kind of do it anywhere anytime so yeah. i can work it around a tv show or a movie I can, I can meet people where they are. I can meet people on Zoom. I, it's, it's just this incredible realization that much like sharing a meal, I can just share a conversation with someone. Well, on my podcast, which you're, I'm inviting you now on. I'll be there anytime. You share both. Oh. It's called Naked Lunch. Love it. I and love it. And we film it. it. We, we tape it right here. This is my son's old bedroom. And I, he moved out because he's 20 Because <laughs> uh, he's an adult. table and chairs, and that's where we do the podcast. We order in lunch, and it's fun. Amazing. Yeah. What a dream. Yeah. And now a word from our sponsors. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After Raymond, I thought I'm going to write sitcoms. That's what I'm supposed to do. Nobody wanted them. Yeah. The business changed while I, in those nine years. They Everybody wanted friends. Right. Well, I can't write friends. I, I, It's not my sensibility. I like the show, but it's not me. I write Everybody Loves Raymond or that kind of family thing mm -hmm. that I can identify with, right? Yeah. They didn't want it. They said, just try to, you know, we like you, but just do something more hip and edgy. I said, well, you got the right guy. I'm Mr. Hip and Edgy. <laughs> and I knocked around for years again, like I said, but I had this idea, this dream of doing a food and travel show. And after 10 years of trying to sell it to everyone, I finally walked into PBS. That was the first place that we did the show. It was called I'll Have What Phil's Having. Mm. And I sold the show with one line. This is the line. I'm exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he was afraid of everything. <laughs> and they understood what the show would be. They got it. They got it. And so I That's did six so episodes there. Mm -hmm. And those first six episodes did very well. We, we won the James Beard Award for Best uh, Show. Yeah. And then we were uh, canceled. Don't Wild. know why. I think money had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. But there came this new place, Netflix. Wow. And now you're going to see March 1st, season seven. Incredible. Seven years. Yeah. What do you think when you look at these seven, because, you know, you can look back at these nine years of yeah. Everybody Loves Raymond, and now you're looking back at these seven years of this show. Are, are there similar moments that just zing out at you as, wow, that, that was exceptionally cool? There's something in every episode where mm. I never thought I would do it. And usually it's because my brother forced me to do it. <laughs> it usually goes something like this. You're going to jump in that cold water. No, I'm not. He says, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. He goes, yes, you are. And then I do it. And I may not enjoy it at the moment, but I'm then glad that I did it. And that mm. baby step out of your comfort zone makes you mm -hmm. braver next time. Yeah. And for mm. a lot of us... 
just getting off the couch and going somewhere is that baby step out of the comfort mm-hmm. zone. And that's who the show's for. Yes, I the show that. is for if you enjoyed your trip to Venice, you might enjoy seeing it again, right? Mm-hmm. But what about a place you've never been? And my attitude is like, if this putz, me, can go outside, maybe you can too. Yeah. I'm not Anthony Bourdain. I'm not brave like he was. I'm not an adventurer like he was. I'm just a guy who likes to be comfortable, to be honest, and doesn't like going out of his comfort zone. Mm -hmm. But that's where all the magic happens. I like that, though. Think about it that way, a step towards bravery. And it's not lost on me that your brother does for you on your show what you were doing for Ray when you made him go to Italy. Well, yeah. He, you, we all need that little push in the tush, right? We mm-hmm. just, let's go. Let's go. Move. Go. You can do it. Yeah. Sometimes terrible. Sometimes like in Austin, Texas, he put me in the Formula One uh, Ferrari around the <laughs> Formula One track. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> that was, that, have you ever done that? Gone Terrifying. that fast in a car? Terrifying. You did it? I didn't do a full Formula One. I did like a stop at a NASCAR thing, which is very similar. And I, How fast did you go? Enough that I felt like my eyeballs were going to come out of the back of my skull. Yes, I went fast. 187 miles an hour. Yeah, that's a lot. You, it's not pleasant at all. It's very violent. It's mm-hmm. not. And, and they hit the turns at that speed. And we see it on TV. It goes, goes zoom, zoom, zoom around the track. No, it doesn't. You, they hit the brakes as you would have to going into a turn really hard and you're thrown yeah. to one side and then the other and then jump back and forward. Uh, I'm old man. It might not be for people like us, Phil. People like us want to eat food, not get beaten up at Guess work. Guess what? I couldn't eat for like three days after that oh. because I was so like, a, I went from there, I went to the, the Pepto-Bismol factory. <laughs> That's a horror show for you. It is. It is, it is terrible. Okay. So, so Formula One aside, yes. some of the things may perhaps like cold plunging in hindsight, you're glad you've done. Was it because you knew he'd push you? Was it nerve wracking to partner with your brother on this show? Or is it no, part of the reason you the wanted to do I it? Made. The ah. first call I made was to him because he'd already been a, a producer in TV shows. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I don't know if you're going to, if you get your dream, like PBS said, we're giving you six on the air, right? Yeah. The first person I called was him. I said, I got this this gig. And he says, really? They're going to let you go around the world and eat? What are they going to call this show? The Lucky Bastard? I said, quit your job and come produce the show with me. And we'll call our production company Lucky Bastards. And Amazing. So yes. Yes. Amazing. And now I get to travel the world with my best friend. That's Don't the tell coolest. I never. He, no, we'll, we, we, he won't hear this. Okay. You we'll have make to sure. Team. You have to be team Phil, not team okay. People, okay, I, I do the live tour when I, I go and speak, and invariably, somebody will raise their hand and, where's Richard? <laughs> and I call security. Wonderful. Throw yeah. him out. That's right. Turn the whole world upside he down. That's enough. Enough. He's a lucky enough bastard. That's right. But we do have fun. And we, we, we you know, the we all... Uh, I share the food with with the crew and with him, and it's just you see it. It's it's we understand me especially mm-hmm. how lucky, how mm-hmm. lucky. That's mm-hmm. the, I mean, who gets to do this? It's so cool. Where are you guys taking us in season seven? 
season seven, Dubai, I mentioned, right? We also yes. go to Mumbai, India. Have you Ooh, been there? No, I haven't. I'm dying to go. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, they call it Maximum City because it's everything. It's If you wanted to see New York in the 70s, yeah. this is like times 100. You can't wow. believe. It's like the, the first place I went in the show, you'll see it. It's like being dropped into the middle of a giant Times Square, packed with people, really hot, on New Year's Eve. Wow. Like, that, that, that's the feeling. Okay. And with every manner of transportation, scooters, tuk-tuks, buses, cars, uh, taxis, uh, cows, in the street. Yeah. Insane. And they're all friendly and nice and great. Amazing. You can't even believe how this is possible, why there isn't a fist fight. But there's no traffic lights. Everyone's honking, beeping, beeping, but it's not honk. Get out of my way, you know, jerk. It's I'm here. I'm here coming in. Oh, okay. You're yeah. right. Uh, friendly and sweet. You see rich and poor next to mm -hmm. each other. You see, but you don't see the kind of, Things we're seeing in LA and New York on the streets that I did not see in Mumbai, mm. which I expected to see. Yes, there are people living in in housing that you can't believe, like ten shacks on the way from the airport into the city. It's it's uh, upsetting even, but I didn't see the kind of I don't know misery mm. that I see in America. And there's something to be taken from that. I know there is. It mm -hmm. kept me from going to Mumbai for a long time. How am I going to have my lighthearted food and travel show in such right. a place with such poverty? Mm -hmm. How do you square that? Mm -hmm. And then I realized, I guess I do what I always try to do, which is try to leave the place a tiny bit better than you found it. Mm -hmm. So we focus on at least one or two charities per episode so that you see mm -hmm. and maybe even get ideas of how you can give or start something here. Yeah. Right? And mm -hmm. then you can have your fun. I love that. I yeah. love that you try to remind people that there is always something to do. Yes, always. You know, people will ask me when the world's on fire, how do, how do you also have joy? Especially because I do a lot. I, I try to do as much as I can, you know, yes. political advocacy and volunteer yes. work and fundraising. And and I come back all the time. I've talked about it on this show before. There's a, I don't know if you're a poetry fan, but there's a poet called Jack Gilbert. Oh, yeah. And he wrote this poem called A Brief for the Defense. Okay. And the whole thesis of the piece is that there is always suffering somewhere. Right. When there's a group of people laughing in one city, there's a group of people wailing in grief in another. Right. And th this is the way of the world, and it'll break your heart. But mm. what it cannot do is make you abandon delight. Because if you are experiencing delight, you better experience it to the fullness of your being. Because how dare you not knowing how many people are suffering and that you could be the one suffering next. You're like when so you right. have delight, you got to, you got to take it. And if you can turn your delight into a way to channel resources toward others at yep. the same time, yep. what a gift. Like you can highlight charities on a show about food. What an amazing thing you get to do. 
And you better enjoy it for as many episodes as you get to do it. Nobody enjoys it more than me. Mm. I realize that that's maybe the meaning of life at my old age. This is what I've learned. Say more about that. It's a one-way street, right? Let's Mm. assume for a minute that maybe there's no heaven. Maybe this is all there is. And then if there's heaven, we'll be delightfully surprised. (laughs) Some of us may be going the other way. But let's assume, why not live life as if this is all there is? Mm. Because for all we know, it may be. Mm -hmm. So do we want to be happy or sad? Do we want to be joyful or terrible? And most Mm -hmm. people in the world that I meet, which makes me more joyful, most people are nice. Yeah. You know, stuff that we see on the news, of course it's depressing. And of course I get upset and angry even and frustrated at the injustices and the terribleness. But we have to realize that it's on the news because it's out of the ordinary. Mm. Not everybody's like that. Not There's not horrible criminals doing terrible things all the time. In fact, most people are nice and get along in the world. I even mm-hmm. say this as a generality. Most people are so much better than their governments. Yes. They, like you said, we do all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. A happy, healthy life for us and our kids, yeah. right? Good schools, good food, clean air and water, mm-hmm. right? We all want yeah. that. And that's how most of us live in the world. You've seen it if you travel. You've seen it. And there are ideas to be taken from other countries who seem to have the answers. Have you been to Japan? Yeah, once in my teens, I'd really like to go back as an adult. So we go to Kyoto in this season. And Mm. Kyoto is one of the most gorgeous places I've ever been in my life. I can't believe how spectacularly beautiful it is. And Monica got to come with me. My wife got to come with me. And it was like a second honeymoon being there. It It was the only Japanese city that wasn't bombed during World War II. And so it has over 2,000 ancient temples and shrines in the city. Mm -hmm right? That are like a thousand years old. Yeah. You you will love it. And of course the food and just the, their way of their aesthetic, their way of being, you know, my line is that you go to the drugstore and you buy a pack of gum and they wrap it for you as if it's for your hundredth birthday. Mm. That's the, that's the care and attention to detail and kind of serene beauty that permeates every aspect of of life it seems there Mm. and you try to you know get some of that in your life right well it reminds you much like that idea of what you were sharing a moment ago you you can choose to cling to the joy in every day you can choose to see it every day it is a choice yeah and you know you can you can wrap a pack of gum if you want to you can make anything beautiful that's right. I got to show you one thing. Can you see that? Do you know what that is? Can you see that? What is that? It looks like an apple, but I can tell it's made of paper. Or maybe okay, it's so candy. That, it's a, something wrapped in cloth. That's a okay. cloth wrapping. Oh, it looks like a green apple to me on the Zoom screen. That's right. It does. Yeah. 
Wow. That is the extra roll of toilet paper in the hotel, Stop. built on a shelf designed <laughs> just for that purpose. It's so All beautiful. Right? So even that's a present. <laughs> wow. Isn't that great? So cool. That's just an idea of how it is in Kyoto. Mm-hmm. You won't believe. Wow. That's an ice cream cone. That's an ice cream cone. All of that is edible. Beautiful. Isn't that gorgeous? And the ice cream store is a combination ice cream store and florist. Wow. <laughs> so they're selling and that's real where flowers, the flowers and then come here's in. your edible flower ice cream cone. So beautiful. Yeah. How are you not like transformed by magic like that, right? Yeah. So special. You see the care and detail. And then it's delicious too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what did I say? Kyoto, Mumbai, Dubai, Taipei. Have you been to Taipei? No. Best street food in the world? Oh, I got to go. A lot of the Chinese food that we have in LA, especially in the San Gabriel Valley, you can find a lot of Taiwanese. Yeah, incredible food in the valley, yeah. Um, Iceland, you mentioned you had been. <laughs> we, we go there. I love it's it. Spectacular. Mm-hmm. Have, did you see the Northern Lights? I did. I've been a couple I didn't. of times. Oh, You've been I, a couple of times. Yeah, I loved Iceland so much. I've, I've now been three times. <gasps> I just think it's magic. Wow, we were there when the volcano was starting to go off. No. Yeah. Not the oh, giant wow. eruption, but you saw, we saw the fire. We saw stuff. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, a spectacular Incredible. place. Isn't just it wild when something like that happens and you go, oh, I forgot that we're just these tiny little people on a planet. Yes, so enjoy every second because you never know when a volcano is going to come up underneath you. There it is. Or an is earthquake. It, is, it, is it that spirit of joy, you think? Because it, I mean, it just, it seeps out of you, Phil. It's who you are. <laughs> is that something that when you think about ways you want to grab it, harness it, what you want to do with it, is that what inspired you to write a children's book with your daughter? Oh. As if you're not doing enough cool things, you've, you've written a children's book. Can you walk us through it and tell us what it's about? I mean, friends, you know how I geek out on great children's books. And oh. this one is so special. I need to know how you guys decided to do it this year. What, what happened? I have, a, I have a very smart, beautiful daughter named mm-hmm. Lily, who's 26 now. And she texts me one day. She found the text from uh, two years ago. Uh, Dad, you should write a children's book about how you eat everything and you had a little girl who wouldn't eat anything. (laughs) And I said, that's a great idea, Lily. I'll do it with you. And she said, you will? I said, of course. And we wrote it together. And then we found a great illustrator. And it's called Just Try It about a dad who eats everything and his little girl who won't eat anything. It's so sweet. Oh, thanks. And we have a little tour coming up where we'll be going to like five cities and, and doing bookstores and yeah. schools and reading to the kids. Yeah. Lily's really looking forward to it. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. What a cool thing that you get to do that with your daughter. Um, uh, every morning I wake up and feel grateful. That's, I'm sure you've heard this from other people that you've spoken to, that that's really the secret. And I'm sure yeah. you feel the same way. I'm grateful that I got up. Look at my dog <laughs> is on my bed. And next to me is my wife of 34 years. Wow. Life is good. I have a house. I have a roof so over cool. my head. My kids are happy. My son is getting married. My daughter has a nice boyfriend who's a chef. He's a great chef. I win again. 
<laughs> so that's the base level is gratitude. Now, does it yeah. mean that I don't get angry and frustrated and, and upset about terrible things that happen? No, of course, I'm a person. But people say they see me on the show. You look so happy. Yeah, I'm happy doing that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Why wouldn't mm -hmm. I be happy? What if you walk through like, oh, here we go again, another place I got to eat. No, I'm thrilled to be there. I'm mm -hmm. thrilled to see the new place and meet the new people. They're always sweet yeah. to me. So mm -hmm. I look forward to it. That, the mm -hmm. hardest part of doing my show is waiting to do the show. I love that. <laughs> if you love what you do for work, it'll never feel like work in your life, right? Exactly right. Mark Twain said, Make your vacation your vocation. Mm. And now a word from our wonderful sponsors. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink 
That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That feels like a good segue into my favorite question, Phil, because you've nailed it. You know, from from the charitable work you do on the show, and, you know, I even got to read about the incredible work you did hosting Rescued Recipes, this fundraiser dinner that raised money for Holocaust remembrance. That's such a big, heavy cultural experience. And then you travel the world and and you bring joy into these places and these populations of people and where there is light, there is heaviness. And you highlight both. You highlight joy and culture. You you sit down with people who suffer around the world and you make sure you advocate for their causes, for their communities, for their charities. And then you you figure out these incredible ways to turn your happiest moments into projects we get to share, like this book that you're doing with your daughter. You, you remind me that it is possible to do all of it and still carry your lightheartedness in everything that you do. And, and I wonder when, when you think about what's next or how you want to continue on this path, as you look into this, you know, opening year of 2024, what feels like your work in progress? Because from the outside, it looks like you have a lot of things figured out. So, Mm. So if you think about a work in progress, what are what are you still working on? What are you still tinkering with? Uh, the show has my heart. And because it's not a year-round gig, mm. you know, we, we can film a season in three months. What do I do the rest of the wow. time? Right? Okay. Because it's a, usually, you know, five, six episodes, right? And, yeah. and uh, sometimes the order is for 10 episodes. This order that's coming up season seven is eight episodes, but one season, right? Mm-hmm. So that's before it would be 10 episodes, seasons five and six, right? So this Got is season it. seven, eight episodes. So it's actually two episodes less, just eight episodes at once. Okay. Fine. But now I have to wait to see if we're picked up again. Yeah. You never know. Just like we you were saying, know. you were always on the bubble. That's how mm-hmm. I live now. Yeah. But what do I do in the meantime? I do the children's book with Lily. I do the live tour where I go around and get to talk about exactly what we're talking about. This is the message, right? We show mm-hmm. a highlight reel. I'm on with a moderator for a little while. Then I open it up to audience questions, which is always my favorite part because I get to mo- meet more great people, right? Around the country. And even I've done it in Europe. And I just got back from Australia this fall. It was lovely. The best thing about the job and I'll bet you'll agree about what you do is meeting the people who are so sweet, mm-hmm. right? That makes you feel mm-hmm. good about the world when you meet mm-hmm. so many nice people. So that's everything to me. 
And that's mm. the project. It doesn't mean I don't have other ideas. I try to pursue. Sometimes I'll even have a sitcom idea and I'll write it with a friend of mine or something or a younger person who knows more about the world today and what people want. <laughs> but so far, I just, I mean, I don't have to tell you, the business seems crazy right now. It's wild out there. It's wild out there. Yes. So can, we can either worry about it mm-hmm. or get on a plane maybe. <laughs> I love that. I love that. If you're lucky enough to be able to travel, go. That's it. And That's I it. Tell kids, kids are like, oh, well, you get to go. You get to go fancy. I'm like, no, 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 no. I built my way up to fancy. Mm-hmm. No, I've earned the right and I'm at the age where I'm going to lie down on the flight. <laughs> Especially a flight that's, you know, 15, 16 hours. Right. Yeah, you've earned it. But when I was a kid, when I was in my 20s, mm-hmm. took the coach seat, the cheapest, yeah. even when I wasn't a courier, they had very cheap flights to Europe mm-hmm. at that time. They still have bargains like this. You get mm-hmm. the cheapest flight you can because the main thing is to get there. And yeah. then you're in Paris and you buy a baguette and a piece of cheese and you sit in the park for free. Mm-hmm. And for five bucks, you're having the most delicious thing you ever had in your life in the most beautiful place you've ever seen. And you're as good as anybody. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you know what? The really special thing you learn when you've lived long enough is that that's still the thing you want to do. That's right. You might have earned, you know, you might be your age and have earned a better seat on the way over there, whatever, but you still just, I still just want to get the baguette and sit in the park. That's right. Sit on the Seine, get a cheap bottle of wine with two friends. Hey, they have some pretzels there with mustard. Let's go. Let's Let's go. It's fantastic. Yeah. The rest of it's a little bit of an illusion, but when you get down to what really lights up your soul, yeah, like we said earlier, we're all the same. I love the street food. I'd rather have mm. a great hot dog than, than a four-hour French meal where my back hurts thinking about it, right? <laughs> I'd rather just have the delicious thing. Just give me the delicious thing. Yeah. Let me walk around and eat the delicious yeah, thing right. and meet new people. Oh, I love it. I can't wait to come over for lunch. Come on. Where, uh, where are you traveling next? Um, well, I'm on the East Coast this month, so I'm stopping in at, you know, all my favorite spots to eat. In New York? And Yeah. Uh, have you been to La Industry Pizza yet? No, I just went to Ruby Rosa last week, which- That's good. Oh, it's so and, good. And I want to recommend Mama's 2 on okay. the Upper West Side, 160 right. Broadway. That's great. Ooh, all the way up. Okay. And Raza's in Jersey City. Great. Awesome. I'll take your whole list. Okay. People, if you're listening, go to philrosenthalworld.com. You have all my picks from the shows. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That'll be a good resource. Friends at home, we'll put that up on our on our Instagram resources for this episode. So you nice. guys have a, a nice quick link. Oh, Phil, you're just a ball. Thank you so much for coming on today. I I just, I, I adore you. I knew I would because all my friends told me so, but I'm so glad to have finally had a moment with you. Well, Sophia, you do not disappoint, as they say. You're lovely and great and sweet. Thank you. And uh, we're going to be friends now and we're going to eat. Can't wait. Thanks for having me. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.